morning, saints. So nice to get up here and get to see all your smiling faces. I notice that many of you are looking very handsome with your mustaches. Um, I'm not going to try to discern which ones are like 12-monthers and which ones are one-monthers, but um, mine probably won't last till next week because I have a wife who loves me. Let's bow our hearts in prayer and then turn to God's Word. Father, thank you for this moment, this highlight in the week, when we can gather together and gather around your Word. I pray, Lord, that you would deepen our love, our reverence, our longing for your word. Deepen our conviction that what we have here in the Bible is more than just good stories or even archetypal narratives, but they are the Lord God speaking to us, your words written. Increase our affection for your word, because in it we see us as we truly are. We get an honest appraisal of our standing before you, that we deserve nothing but hell and death and judgment, but we also see our Savior, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, who exchanged his life for ours and gifts us with perfect righteousness. We could never know that apart from your word. So send your spirit now to lead us into all truth, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. 2 Samuel chapter 21, that's our passage this morning, and we're going to move past that. You'll notice as we move through this passage that this is really broken down into two chunks, or two movements, and we're going to treat it as such this morning. The very first movement is the battles if you will, with the Philistines. And that's captured in 2 Samuel chapter 21, verses 15 to the end of the chapter. As we're looking at that first chunk, let me just get us caught up very quickly. Um, since our passage last week, Absalom has died. Remember David's rebellious, usurping son, Absalom, who died in chapter 18. David has now been restored to the throne in Jerusalem in chapter 19, David has done this supernatural act then of extending clemency and amnesty to the very rebels who tried to overthrow him with Absalom. Amnesty to rebels, right? It's an act of strength, not of weakness. I won't preach that. We'll pick that up another time. Chapter 20. Then David goes back and does right by the Gibeonites in chapter 21. And now we come to our passage today. This is how it begins, verse 15. And there was war again with the Philistines. And if you're reading this for yourself, you really need to put that emphasis on it, okay? It's not like in italics or anything in your Bible, but it's there. It kind of reads like this. And again, there was war with the Philistines. When you come to chapter 21, verse 15, it carries with it this weight of weariness. Read on. And David went down together with his servants, and they fought against the Philistines. And David grew weary. 
Okay, so this weariness is not only something that's implied in the text, something that you need to pick up by context, it's also something that's explicit in the text. We're told that at this point in his life, David is old and he's feeling weary. I imagine, as we've been tracking through his life over the past several weeks, that David's weariness is physical. He's probably just feeling tired in his old age. No doubt he's emotionally worn down. Man, this guy has been through the ringer, has he not? And I'm sure that he was feeling every day of his age. Can anyone relate? You woke up this morning, you went to throw your legs out of bed and you felt them creak and crack. You had pains in places you didn't even know you had, right? Like I lived the first 40 years of my life not even knowing I had knees. Now they're sore all the time. As you age, you begin to get weary and sore. And that's the the plight of David in chapter 21. As the Philistines come with yet another wearisome, tiresome war. Like enough already, right? What does David do? We're told that in his weary state, he goes. He goes to battle. Now, now you got to capture this, because David is nearing the end of his life. And certainly throughout David's life, we've witnessed moments of great heroic faithfulness to God and obedience. We've seen David trust in the promises of God. But we've also seen moments, especially a couple chapters ago, where David was faithless and he failed. But now as David is nearing the end of his life in these last couple of chapters, he finishes strong. He steps on the gas. He starts going back to trusting the Lord God and doing the things that God requires of him. So he's old, he's weary, but he goes. He's the king. He goes to fight the Philistines. And perhaps you noticed it when Brock read the passage. But these Philistines have a couple of interesting characters in their number, don't they? Giants. So first, the first giant is named Ishbi-Benob. <laughs> there was no need for me to tell you his name. I just wanted to say it. Ishbi-Benob. We're told that he descended from Goliath of Gath, and you'd recognize that character, of course. We're told in verse 16 that Ishbi Benob was motivated by vengeance against David. Look at verse 16. He was one of the descendants of the giants whose spear weighed 300 shekels of bronze, and he was armed with a new sword, and he, what does it say? Thought to kill David. So no doubt the tale of this giant slayer had worked its way down through the generations of giants in Gath and Ishbi Benoth was like, I'm going to have at that guy. I'm going to get some vengeance. Well, that's the first giant. We're told that Abishai steps up to the plate and takes care of business on David's behalf. Slaughters this giant. See, the men who were surrounding David at this point in his life have noticed. 
that their beloved king has begun to age. He's not the warrior that he once was, right? Back in David's youth, the popular lore and the song would say, Saul has slain his thousands, but David has slain his tens of thousands. In his youth, he was a fine specimen of a warrior. But the men around him have noticed he's getting old. Look at verse 17. We're told that Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, came to his aid and attacked the Philistine giant and killed him. And then David's men pulled him aside. And they said to David, sit this one out. See that? They said, you shall no longer go out with us to battle lest you quench the lamp of Israel. The men have gathered around aging David and they're saying, we're going to fight this one for you. You sit this one out. Okay, verse 18. First battle with the Philistines is over. The giant's been slayed. You think it's time for a rest, right? What happened? There was another war. Verse 18. After this, there was again another war with the Philistines at Gob. You starting to feel the weariness already? More giants. We're told the second giant is this guy named Saf. And we're told in verse 18 that he was struck down by another Israelite fighting on David's behalf. A guy named Sibekai. Okay, so you think two giants down, Philistines, that's enough war already. Can we have some rest? And? No. Verse 19. And there was again war with the Philistines at Gob. And there was, in verse 19, we're told yet another giant. This guy's name was also Goliath, but not Goliath of Gath. This is Goliath the Gittite. And he was struck down by one of David's guys named Elhanan. And then verse 20, there's yet another war in Gath. And there was war again at Gath. And there was also another giant. Now, this unnamed giant, we presume, had some sort of chromosomal deformity because he had six fingers and six toes on each of his appendages. The Bible tells us he had 24 in particular. I don't know why the Bible includes that. It's just kind of a novel thing to think about, right? It's an enormous giant, and he's got one too many toes and fingers on each hand. And this time it's Jonathan, David's nephew, who steps up, strikes down the giant, and kills him. Do you feel the weariness in this? It's just like this relentless barrage of attacks from the Philistines and from their giants. Well, there's two things I want you to pull from this first movement or this first chunk. Okay? The first one is sort of superficial and it's just a prima facie reading and we're going to apply it. But it matters. We've noticed that David is old. He has come to a place where he can no longer engage in hand-to-hand -hand combat with giants. But he's done something right. Okay? At this late stage in his life where his strength is waning, he's surrounded by young men. Young men who are eager to pick up the task on his behalf. And you know, friends, this is the first simple thing I want you to hear from this first chunk. 
it's critically important for you to know the different seasons in your life. Whether you're a young man, a woman, a middle-aged, or an old. you got to know what period you're playing. Here's what I mean by that. I, I often think about life as a three-period hockey game. The first period, you grind to put things in place. Okay, so maybe that's the season where you're going to school or you're doing some vocational training or you're doing something. You're putting things in place so that in the second period, you can shift gears and begin to get the hay in the barn. Support your family, right? Make your community a better place. That's second period. Then third period, that's when you are an old person and you actually begin to live down and deplete your resources, right? So first one, you're putting things in place. Second period, you're, you're getting it done. You're getting the hay in the barn. Third period, you're living down and depleting your resources as an older person. And each period is lovely and beautiful if you play it for what it is. But there are few things so unseemly as a man or woman who should be in the third period, but they're still trying to play the first. I mean, this is how we end up with ridiculous things like fat, bald, 50-year-old men in skinny jeans. Right? You got you to gotta know what period you're playing and play that period. And that's what David does. He knows that he's an old man. The guys come alongside him. He surrounds himself with young guys. And he shares leadership with them. Now, it's clear he must have started doing that before this moment because they were ready and able to take up the task. But it's uh, a fascinating season in life, this getting older. You know, where you go from being the lead initiator and implementer to being the cheerleader, mentor, and supporter. I'm starting to get a bit of a glimpse of that at 47, and I love it. It's fantastic. And the beauty of it is, look at verse 22. In verse 22, we're told, these four giants were descended in Gath, and they fell by the hand of David, and by the hands of his servants. So here's the point. David is old. He's too old to engage in hand-to-hand -hand combat himself, but now his giant slaying is vicarious. It's still by his hand that these four giants are slain. Do you see that? And so, friend, if you are, you know, transitioning from one period to the next or from the second to the third, be aware of where you are in your life. If you're in the third period, look for ways to share what God has called you to do. Let your work be done vicariously through younger people. See, there's something beautiful for David. He goes from being the hands-on giant slayer to being the vicarious giant slayer. And here's what happens. His giant slaying multiplies and goes on in perpetuity. Let me tell you what I mean. David killed 
one giant. The guys who he allowed to step up alongside him and step out of the way, they killed four in half a chapter. Right? So, so this is the first thing I want you to see in this passage. Um, learn from David and invest in the leaders around you. Share gladly in their work. The first sort of prima facie reading of this, it's simplest and easy to apply. The second one is an allegorical reading. Okay, and this one goes a little deeper, so, so let's, let's dig in. In this moment, okay, the, the reign of David, God's people have been in the land, the land of Canaan, the promised land, for well over 300 years. Okay, that's just to sort of establish the context for you. God's people were almost four centuries ago saved from Egyptian slavery and delivered into the land of promise of Canaan. This, we are told, was a land that was flowing with milk and honey. It's it's, it's the picture of every single one of God's people who has been saved and rescued and delivered. Okay, that's, that's the picture. But we're told that not only does the land of Canaan have milk and honey and gigantic grapes the size of your head, it also has giants in the land. That's what Joshua and Caleb and the spies saw when they peeked in 400 years before David. So God's people find themselves in the land of Canaan, the land of promise. But we're told that 400 years in, there's still giants in the land. There's still Philistines. And so God's people are still waging war against these Philistines. And, and here is the allegorical picture for us all. If you're a Christian man or woman and you read these passages, you can feel the weariness that's inherent in the passage, but you can also relate to it yourself. Because sometimes your Christian life feels like God has saved you from slavery to sin, death, hell, and destruction. He saved you from Egypt. He's moving you into the promised land that will be fully realized when your faith becomes sight and you reach heavenly reward. But for now, you find yourself in the promised land, and there's still Philistines that are seeking to destroy you. There's still besetting sins. And the only option that you have as a man or a woman as it relates to the besetting sins in your life, you will either put them to death or they will put you to death. That's the allegorical picture of what's happening here. David and the people are in the land of Canaan, but there's still the presence of Philistine giants that are seeking to destroy them. Now, there's a handful of things I want to apply from this allegorical picture to the Christian life. The first one if you're a Christian man or woman, and you see the giants or the Philistines in your life, you see the presence of sin in your life, 
that can actually rob you of assurance. It can be the thing that Satan, the accuser, comes alongside you and says, oh, you think you're a Christian, do you? Well, you're just a big phony. You're just a big fake. Look how easily and quickly you fall into those sins. That's what can happen. And so you might have moments where you think, am I truly a Christian or am I a fraud? I know that I love the Lord Jesus Christ. I know that I trust him for my salvation. I know that I hate sin, and yet I still fall into it. There's still the presence of Philistines in my life. Well, friend, don't allow the presence of sin in your life to rob you of your assurance. In Romans chapter 7, Paul, St. Paul, said, the very things I want to do, I don't do. And the things that I don't want to do, I do. Who will rescue me from this body of death, O wretched man that I am? But thanks be to God. And so Paul's lived experience was similar to this allegorical picture that we see under David in Canaan. The presence of Philistines, the presence of sin. Well, how did St. Paul resolve that? Well, he said in Romans 6 that the Christian man or woman has died to sin and been raised to new life in Christ. That's the picture of your baptism. So, so, what, so what Paul would say to you, if he was standing here, he would say, um, you're a Christian man or woman, you still see the presence of sin in your life, but if you're a Christian man or woman, sin has no more dominion over your life. It has no more final say or power or authority. Its guilt and its hold and its control on you has been canceled. That old RD that was sinful and living under the sin has now been buried and a new RD has been raised to life in Christ. Sin is still present, but it doesn't hold dominion. Sin in your life is like a defeated foe. Now, let's press into this a little bit more. Okay, remember we're talking about how it is that God's people are in the land, but Philistines are still there waging war against them. That's the allegorical picture. You and I have been saved, delivered from slavery to sin, but we still see the presence of sins at times in our lives. So let's press into that. You can be sure that both Christians and non-Christians still sin. Okay, that's a fact. The difference is the person who is not in Christ is still dead in their trespasses and sin. To use biblical language, they are still in the domain of darkness. Sin has final authority over them as long as they are not in Christ. And so while both Christians and non-Christians might sin, the non-Christian has no power to not sin. Sin holds dominion over them, and they have to. 
the Christian man or woman, we're told in Romans, is like David who is battling off the Philistines. Now think about this picture. Before God led his people into the land of Canaan, to whom did the land of Canaan belong? The Philistines. But they no longer hold dominion over that land. That land now belongs to the Lord God and his people. But they still, as a defeated foe, are present and trying to wage war and trying to kill God's people. Well, that's the picture of your sin and mine. It holds no more dominion over you, but it's still present. And now, because its dominion has been canceled, you are free to wage war against it and put it to death. So back to this question of assurance. You're a Christian man or woman. You see the presence of sin in your life. And friend, it is not the evidence that you are a fake or a phony. In fact, it serves two purposes. The first purpose that I want to suggest that it serves is that the presence of sin in your life that you wage war against keeps you as a Christian man or woman relying on God. If there were no Philistines seeking to destroy you, if there was no more sin or death still present and trying to, well, you might be self-deluded and think that you were self-righteous. That's why Paul says again in Romans 5, he says, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. The sin in your life is supposed to press you ever more deeply into the reality of God's grace to you in Jesus Christ. The second purpose that the presence of sin serves in your life, if you are a Christian and you're questioning your assurance because of the sin that you see, don't miss this. Take heart. Because that in itself is an assurance. Look, if you are an unregenerate reprobate, you don't give a thought to the sin in your life. If you look at your life and you hate the fact that you continue to fall into sin, that the Philistines are still there, and it bothers you and you wish it weren't so, why that very desire is itself the assurance that you are born again and you belong to Jesus Christ. Take heart. All right, let's wrap up this first chunk. David is an old man. Um, it's an allegorical picture of us mortifying and putting to death the sin that remains in our lives, no longer under its dominion or authority. We're now set free to wage war against it as a defeated foe and destroy it. That's the picture. David's an old man. And if there are any old men here this morning, you might agree that there are some sins that are easier to mortify the older you get, right? Is rather eat a sandwich and watch TV, I don't know. But, but the Christian man or woman must never grow complacent in their war against the sin that is present in their life. 
David never relents or gives ground to the Philistines. They are present, they are assaulting him, and he wages war against them to the end. For a Christian man or woman, God in Jesus Christ has changed your dominion. You're no longer under the power of sin, and so now you are set free to do the same. Wage war against it relentlessly, for those who persevere to the end will be saved. All right, that's the first thing, the battle. The second piece that I want to look at more quickly is the uh, song of victory. Okay, so this begins in chapter 22. We're not going to go through the whole thing, just the first four verses. So David is at this moment where he's an old man. He's had four successive battles against Philistines and giants. He's watched as his boys go and win the battle on his behalf. And so he gives thanks to the Lord God in a song. Now, there are countless biblical metaphors used to describe God. We read of God being a father. That's a biblical metaphor, right? We read of anthropomorphisms where God is described as having or exercising human traits or human body parts, right? Like God delivered his people out of Egypt by a mighty arm. It doesn't mean that God has an arm. It's a metaphor. It's, it's an accommodation to our understanding. We're told that God is the God who sees. We're told that God is a consuming fire. We're told that God is light. These are all metaphors that describe God. But here in chapter 22, David uses a metaphor that's dominant throughout Scripture. And perhaps you noticed it when Brock read it. Look at verse 2. I love this. The Lord is my rock. St. George is here this this morning. Your God is a rock. David says, he's a rock. He's my fortress. He's my deliverer. My God, my rock, in whom I take refuge. My shield, the horn of my salvation. My stronghold and my refuge, my savior. You save me from violence. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised. And I'm saved from my enemies. God is a rock. That's how David begins this victory song and he concludes it. Look at verse 47. The Lord lives and blessed be my rock. And exalted be my God, the rock of my salvation. The God who gave me vengeance and brought peoples down under me. Who brought me out from my enemies. You exalted me above those who rose against me. You delivered me from men of violence. I'm not going to take time to go through places in Scripture where the metaphor is used. Suffice it to say this morning, St. George, is that God is a rock. And you know, in our context, it strikes me that this metaphor of God being a rock just kind of hits different 
the older you get. Have you noticed that? Maybe it's because as you age, your perspective on life and on yourself changes. You are afforded less luxury for delusion as you age. You've seen too much. You've been through too much. You've lived life. You've faced challenges. You've had to come to terms with the limits on your own resilience and fortitude. Okay, so now that you're older, now that you have less strength in your arms and in your back, you are less likely to live out of the lie that you are your own rock. You need a rock. Uh, For years, I coached football at the high school, and I coached a bunch of men in their late teens, and they all lifted weights, and, you know, they, they were pretty convinced that they were their own rocks. But age and life experience and circumstance and hardship will very quickly disabuse us all of that notion. I am not my own rock, but I have a rock, and that's really good news. See, that's what David is saying in 2 Samuel chapter 22, old, wise David. He's sitting in a place where he enjoys the blessing of both old age and lots of hardship and difficulty. And so we can say with David, I am not my own rock, but I have a rock. You know, friends, that's a truth that means so much in tumultuous days like these. When we feel like we are surrounded by social upheaval and living under the very wrath of God, you might wonder, where should I turn? What should a Christian man or woman do? Well, don't be too quick to turn to your own devices. Don't don't look to a political party or a political system or some form of government or anti-government to be your rock. It is true. The Bible encourages Christians to read the times and to be wise and to be prudent. Jesus himself tells us to do that when things are all up in the air. But don't ever mistake best practices for having a rock. Your God is a rock, David says. And so David sings this song of victory At the end of the battle, he enjoys this moment of retrospect where he can now with 20-20 clarity look back on the battle. Not only these four battles with the Philistines, but we're told he's also looking back on God delivering him from Saul. He looks back on that and he says, clearly God has been my rock, my fortress, my refuge. But you know, friends, here's the beauty of being a Christian in 2022 of the Bible. And so what David could only see in retrospect, you and I in the midst of the battle can cry out with that same truth, 
the Lord is my rock. We know it's true. And because God is our rock, Christians experience sorrow in ways that doesn't lead to despair. Because we know we have a rock. Because we have a rock, we experience joys in ways that are all the richer. Because we have a rock. We don't bear the burden of of being self-made men. We look to our God as our fortress and as our Savior. That brings joy and freedom. We had a rock. Well, this rock is your fortress and your deliverer, David says. But David also says that he is your salvation. I know that everyone's getting hungry, so I didn't go through a whole bunch of Bible passages where God is a rock. But I just want to show you one. Because it is true that God being your rock means that you have a secure, safe foundation for this life. But David knew that it also means that God is your rock and your salvation. Because David would have known the account in Exodus 33 very well. In Exodus 33, Moses has come down from Mount Sinai with the tablets. He discovers that the people of God, the Israelites, have fashioned a golden calf and they're worshiping it. He's like, duh, what are you doing, right? And, and he gets angry and he smashes the tablets. And then in his desperation, Moses calls out to God and he's like, God, I really need to be close to you. I need to see you. I need some form of encouragement. And the Lord God says to Moses, he's like, I, I really want to be close to you too. But if you see me, you're going to die. Such is my holiness and such is your sin. We can't be reconciled face to face. And so you might know what happens in Exodus 33. The Lord God wants to be reconciled to Moses. He knows that unshielded Moses would perish in his presence because of his sin and because of God's holiness. So he says to Moses, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to tuck you into the cleft of a rock. And so you will be sheltered and shielded from my holiness and my wrath. And so we will be reconciled. And so you will be saved. Well, friends, your Lord is a rock. He's your fortress. He's your refuge. And Jesus Christ is your rock. He is your salvation. In Jesus, God has hidden you in God and spared you from the wrath of God. Our God is a rock. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that your word is true and timeless because you are from everlasting to everlasting. You are God, you change not. 
pray, God, that in moments of desperation, we would not turn to ourselves, acting as though we are our own rock and fortress, but we would turn to you. God, I pray especially for those here this morning who find themselves outside of the rock of Christ, all too aware that sin still dominates them, I pray, Lord God, that they would turn to you now, that they would confess Jesus as their Lord and Savior and be hidden in the cleft of the rock. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.